Good evening. Biden opens the strategic reserve to combat gas price hikes. He demands patriotism from oil companies. Food shortages threaten hundreds of millions. A report from Afghanistan on women's education and a slap and the code of honor. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, March 31st, 2022. President Joe Biden today launched the largest release ever from the United States Emergency Oil Reserve. The move comes as part of a broad effort by Biden to tackle raging inflation, hurting consumers and threatening Democrats seeking to maintain control of Congress. Today, I'm authorizing the release of one million barrels per day for the next six months over a 180 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. This is a wartime bridge to increase oil supply until production ramps up later this year. And it is by far the largest release of our our national reserve in our history. It will provide historic amount of supply for a historic amount of time, a six-month bridge to the fall. And we'll use the revenue from selling the oil now to restock the Strategic Petroleum Reserve when prices are lower. Biden also accused some oil companies of profiting from soaring gas prices caused by Russia's war in Ukraine. Putin's price hike is hitting Americans at the pump, which brings me to the first part of my plan. To immediately increase the supply of oil, our prices are rising because of Putin's action. There isn't enough supply. And the bottom line is, if we want lower gas prices, we need to have a more oil supply right now. For U.S. oil companies that are recording their largest profits in years, they have a choice. One, they can put those profits to productive use by producing more oils, restarting idle wells, or producing on the sites they already are leasing. Giving the American people a break by passing some of the savings on to their customers and lowering the price of the pump. Or they can, as some of them are doing, exploit the situation. Sit back, ship those profits to the investors, and while American families struggle to make ends meet. Some companies have been pretty blunt. They don't want to increase supply because Putin's price hike means higher profits. One CEO even acknowledged that they don't care if the price of a a barrel of oil goes to $200 a barrel. They're not going to step up the production. I say enough. Enough of lavishing excessive profits on investors and payouts and buybacks when the American people are watching. The world is watching. U.S. oil companies made nearly $80 billion in profit last year. And this year, those profits are expected to continue to soar. This is the time, not the time, to sit on record profits. It's time to step up for the good of your country. Biden's 180 million barrel release is equivalent to about two days of global demand and marks the third time Washington has tapped the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in the past six months. GOP leader Mitch McConnell says Biden's plan is nowhere near enough. The key here is American energy. In 2019, we were an exporter. We have the ability to not only meet our own energy needs, but to help the Europeans meet theirs as they try to wean themselves off of off of Russian energy. The administration's anti-fossil fuel views are sort of like a religion that are kind of unconnected with the needs of not only our country, but the world. This policy is driven by the hard left, which the president almost never crosses. Until that policy changes, 
we're going to have a problem. Spro uh, being opened up for a million barrels is dropping the bucket. GOP leader Mitch McConnell. Nevertheless, the release will cover oil exports to the United States from Russia, banned by Biden this month. Russia typically produces about 10 percent of the world's crude, but only accounts for 8 percent of U.S. liquid fuel imports. But even as the United States, by far the world's largest consumer of gasoline, is trying to boost production and rein in prices, little is being done to stem the shortages of food caused by the war. Russia and Ukraine are the third and eighth largest wheat growing countries. The United States is fourth. Russia and Ukraine's wheat flows primarily to the Middle East, where major price hikes in bread are already occurring. Egypt is the world's largest wheat importer. It depends on Ukraine and Russia, as does Lebanon, where prices have been spiraling. The research director with Food and Water Watch is Amanda Starbuck. She says our corporate controlled just-in-time food system does little to buffer us from supply shocks created by events like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In fact, it helped create the problem, she says. Russia and Ukraine together produce about 30 to 35 percent of global wheat, um, and mainly to countries in the Middle East and to North Africa, where actually wheat consumption is the highest in the world. People in those regions are definitely seeing the signs on the wall that it's going to be a tough time ahead with those shortages. That's going to drive up prices and also just make resources more scarce. And unfortunately, we're feeling those price hikes right now because we do have a global food system. A shortage in a place like Ukraine is going to affect prices across the globe. Here in the U.S., we produce wheat surpluses. We produce more than that we consume domestically. We send things abroad, but our prices are going to go up as well just because there is a shortage on that global market. Everything is so connected. How did this come to be? We have given into a food system that is largely controlled by um, agribusiness, multinational corporations. And what works best for them doesn't necessarily work best for food security. We don't have any kind of buffers along supply chain. You know, we saw this during the pandemic, right? We saw this at the slaughterhouses in the U.S. when all of a sudden animals weren't able to make it to market, to the slaughterhouse, and there's a backing up and huge losses on farms. Well, we're seeing this again now because we don't have, as we had in the past, we don't have robust systems of reserves used to be commonplace. New Deal legislation in the United States established grain reserves where we would put aside wheat and corn and bumper crop years and then years when there are shortages. That not only helps buffer against hunger and scarcity, but also keeps prices really stable for farmers so that they can plan ahead. It's a food system that is generated to make the most money for the purchasers of these grain commodities. I mean, the fact that you can make money by speculating on the grain market, right? I mean, this is all about investors making money and fitting their bottom line. It's not a good system for these agribusinesses when we have systems of supply management and reserves because then farmers have more stable prices. And that even means in years of excess, crop prices aren't dropping down because of a surplus flooding the market because we put that in reserve. I mean, that's really the reason. It's, it's the inability of, of agribusiness to budge on this. And they have worked very hard over the past half century to really kind of lobby for policies that really help their bottom line in terms of what we actually should be doing to promote food security. And what should we be doing in your opinion? There's a lot that we can do here domestically. We really need to return to supply management programs. These came out of um, the New Deal. Climate change. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the Dust Bowl was, I mean, that was before we really even knew what climate change was. And that was really a man-made disaster. I mean, it was because we didn't have policies in place to really 
allow farmers to plant an appropriate amount for their fields, they've used intensive practices, and that's what led to the dust bowl. But we're going to see more of that if we don't rein this in. We also have, like you mentioned, the twin threats of climate change as well. So it's just going to make things even worse. Or it's, it's very unpredictable, but climate change, it is unpredictable what we're going to see in terms of when the drops are going to be and how bad they're going to be and when the forest fires are. It's happening now, and so we know this is a threat, and we still are not addressing that. The idea of uh, food running short in our modern world seemed unthinkable just three years ago, and now we're talking about it as if it's an everyday occurrence. Yeah, and really the sad irony here is that we already grow enough food to feed a world of 9 billion people. We have the means to do this, but around 800 million people go hungry because of you know, chronic food insecurity because they're poor and they have unequal access to foods on the market. Global market does not address that. In fact, it makes smaller countries and developing countries reliant on the global market. So you have a war like this, and countries that don't have the economic means and the social safety nets that other places do, people are going to go hungry. Anything like that? We grow a ton of corn in the U.S., but 99% of the corn does not actually directly feed people. A lot of it goes into things like food additives and livestock feed. And I think if we want to talk realistically about growing more food to meet current and future food needs, we also need to address the resources that we're using here at home. Amanda Starbuck is research director with Food and Water Watch. In related news, Vladimir Putin is demanding foreign buyers pay for Russian gas and rubles starting tomorrow or risk supplies being cut, leaving Europe to face a prospect of losing more than a third of its gas supply. Germany, along with the European Union, is a top importer of Russian gas, and Berlin called the Russian move blackmail. European capitals are already preparing plans for rationing energy. Putin's decision to enforce ruble payments has boosted the Russian currency which fell to historic lows after the February 24th invasion. The ruble has since recovered much lost ground. Payment in rubles would also blunt the impact of Western curbs on Moscow's access to its foreign exchange reserves. Meanwhile, U.S. stocks slumped to close out the first quarter today with its biggest quarterly decline in two years as concerns persisted about the continuing conflict in Ukraine and its inflationary effect on prices. Recently, the Federal Reserve has said it would significantly raise its interest rates to banks to allow to slow down the overheated economy. In more news of fallout from the war, Russia's state-funded RT television channel said today British sanctions on Russian state media organizations showed the imminent end of media freedom. Britain today announced sanctions on 14 more Russian entities and people, including RT and Sputnik, targeting what British officials call President Vladimir Putin's fake news and narratives. RT America has been off the air since the war began. It's mostly U.S. staff got their pink slips after sanctions blocked their paychecks. And after the announcement by Russia that some of its military would be disengaging from Kiev and other battlefronts, the Ukrainian state nuclear company says the Russian forces occupying the Chernobyl nuclear power station have withdrawn from the defunct plant, but it's still dangerous. The United Nations nuclear watchdog, International Atomic Energy Agency, says it's preparing to send a mission to the radioactive waste facilities at Chernobyl in northern Ukraine. Russian soldiers seized control of Chernobyl soon after the February 24th invasion, but the plant's Ukrainian staff continued to supervise the concrete encased remains of the reactor that exploded in 1986, causing the world's worst nuclear accident. And President Biden commented today on word of a possible Russian pullback in its war in Ukraine. He says he'll believe it when he sees it. Depends on how you read exactly what's going on. Thus far, there is no clear evidence that he's pulling all of his forces out of Kiev. There is also evidence that he is beefing up his troops down in the Donbass area. 
Depending on your view of Putin, I'm a little skeptical. It's an open question whether he's actually pulling back and going to say, I'm just going to focus on the Donbass and I'm not worried about the rest of the country. I'm a skeptic, I, I, but I don't have proof that, in fact, he is not going, he's taking a pause, doing all he can to use all the troops he has in the Donbass and continue to keep an eye on and try to move beyond the rest of the country. Don't know the answer. The Washington-based Institute for the Study of War has been following the fighting. They say Russia is withdrawing some elements of its forces around Kiev into Belarus for likely redeployment to other areas of Ukraine. Adding, Russian forces held their positions and didn't conduct offensive operations throughout the rest of the country yesterday. Russian forces, they say, will likely capture Mariupol in the coming days, but suffered high casualties taking the city. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Ukraine is not the only crisis in the world. Afghanistan is suffering under the impact of U.S. sanctions even after the last U.S. troops' chaotic pullout in August. And Al Jazeera reports in Afghanistan, a staggering 95 percent of the population is not eating enough food. It's a figure so high that it's almost inconceivable. As banking restrictions and sanctions on the Taliban by the United States and other countries have made it more difficult for aid groups to move funds and other resources into Afghanistan. Code Pink's Medea Benjamin is in Kabul, where she's been meeting with Afghan university graduates. But she says girls are being removed from elementary and high schools by the Taliban. Very complicated and fluid situation. They have the elementary schools open for women and universities are open, although a number of women are afraid to go because they don't know what, uh, if it's going to stay open for them. It's the middle school. It's the secondary schools that are closed to girls. So for the next generation right now, you can't even become a doctor because you wouldn't be able to go to high school. There's a lot of pressure internally from the girls and their parents and then externally for the Taliban to reverse that decision and open up all schools for girls. What are their dreams for Afghanistan? We've had so many opportunities to talk with girls and women and they have such ambitions. They want to be teachers and doctors and lawyers and uh, two of them told me they wanted to be president. Um, so they certainly are determined to get the right to have an education. Uh, I don't think the Taliban can continue like this. Uh, there will be a major uprising among uh, the young women and their uh, their their fathers um, who are distraught and want their daughters to get an education. And even among the Taliban, we find a lot of them who are anxious to reopen the schools. So it's really from the top this is coming, among the most conservative leadership. I do have a feeling that it will have to change. And it is inspiring to see the women who are very bold. Like in our press conference today, we had women journalists who actually challenged the Taliban who were sitting there, did it openly. So there is a uh, there are a lot of wonderful, very courageous, inspiring women. The last time the Taliban was in power, there were many tales of terror tactics being used against women. You see a return to those days. There are rumors of hunger and malnutrition among the children. So it's a dire economic situation that affects the women and their families. 
Now, the U.S. put these sanctions in place because they said they were punishing the Taliban for their views towards women. Uh, what you seem to be suggesting is the reverse is true. I think there should be international pressure on the Taliban to respect the rights of women and ethnic minorities. But I also think separately there should be massive humanitarian aid and an unfreezing of all the funds that belong to the Afghan people. Those two things should be separated. What's the message you want to give the BAI listeners? We are a delegation of women who had the opportunity to come here and see firsthand and hear the pleas of the Afghan people we've met with saying, don't punish us for the Taliban taking power. This was the result of uh, 20 years of corrupt governments that your country, the U.S., put in place. Taking the Afghan money is a inhumane act on the part of the Biden administration. Unfreeze the funds, support the Afghan women in every way that we can. How are people following uh, what's happening in Ukraine with the Russia and Ukrainian army uh, after their experience with Russian forces years ago? They say that Russia didn't learn its lesson from the terrible invasion of Afghanistan. Now seeing them invading Ukraine is something that people here are very concerned about, but they're mostly concerned about their own lives right now. And they see that the money that was coming in for humanitarian aid for Afghanistan is now going to Ukraine. There will be more hunger as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Again, the Afghan people suffering because of the political machinations of other countries. And that's Code Pink's Medea Benjamin. She joins WBAI from Afghanistan. The Code Pink radio show can be heard on WBAI Thursdays at 10 a.m. In related news, the United Nations is seeking $4.4 billion, a record amount, to help Afghanistan as aid pledges have fallen short of targets. And in just breaking news, closer to home here in New York, a New York judge today struck down the state's new congressional and legislative maps as defying a voter-backed constitutional amendment that aimed to end partisan gerrymandering, dealing a blow to Democrats hoping to hold on to their fragile majority in the House this November. State Supreme Court Judge Patrick McAllister in Steuben County ordered the state legislature to draw bipartisan maps by April 11th, or the court will appoint an independent map drawer to do it. The state will appeal the decision, triggering an automatic stay until the state appeals court takes it up. New York Democrats drew a new congressional map with boundaries that could gain their party as many as three new seats, a crucial advantage at a time when the House majority will come down to just a handful of wins. This is the latest in a series of redistricting disappointments Democrats have faced in recent weeks after what they had what had been several initial legal wins. A Maryland judge invalidated a Democratic-drawn congressional map. The U.S. Supreme Court throughout Wisconsin court-approved legislative maps and added a new majority black district. That added a new majority black district. And an Ohio map that heavily favored Republicans thrown out of the state Supreme Court is now expected to remain in place for 2022. 
And in another story that's been roiling the world, the Hollywood Reporter says today that Will Smith was not formally asked to leave the Oscar ceremony Sunday after slapping Chris Rock on stage, contrary to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. On Wednesday, after a meeting of its full board of governors, the Academy announced it had begun disciplinary proceedings against Smith. He could face suspension, expulsion, or other sanctions if the board chooses to take action at the next scheduled meeting on April 18th. Rock was presenting Best Documentary Feature at the 2022 Oscars on Sunday when he made a G.I. Jane joke about Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, who has a shaved head. The actress has alopecia. After Smith walked up on stage and slapped Rock, he returned to his seat and shouted curses at the presenter to take his wife's name out of his mouth. Smith later went on to win the Best Actor Award for his performance in King Richard. While receiving his first ever Oscar, he apologized to the Academy, but did not, however, mention Rock. The issue, while apparently small in the face of the world's problems, has grabbed the world's attention and focused on issues of honor and status at the most status-seeking of events, the Oscars. Distinguished professor of history, History. Uh, first, we're going to go to a statement by I thought was interesting from Jim Carrey, who had this to say. I was sickened by the standing ovation. I felt like Hollywood is just spineless on mass. It really felt like, oh, this is a really clear indication that uh, we're not the cool club anymore. They asked Chris, do you want to file charges? And Chris apparently said, no, he did not. He doesn't want the hassle. I'd have announced this morning that I was suing Will for $200 million because that video is going to be there forever. It's going to be ubiquitous. You know, that insult is going to last a very long time. If you want to yell from the audience and disapprove or sh show a disapproval or say something on Twitter or whatever, you, you know, you do not have the right to, to walk up on stage and smack somebody in the face because they said words. Actor and comedian Jim Carrey, while distinguished professor of history emeritus Ken Greenberg at Suffolk University in Boston, says it's a question of not of honor, but of lack of honor in our society in general. When you go to the Academy Awards, what's all that about? Well, that's all about honor. You honor some people who win the prize and others who don't win the prize. There's a dishonor often that's felt by people who don't win the prize. It's not only just in the past, but honor is central to every society. What you need in order to have honor in any culture is a group of people in the society that can make the decisions about honor and dishonor, honor some people and dishonor others. Military is a good example of that kind of a thing, but it can happen in modern times in a schoolyard of kids or in a classroom where some people are honored or not. So what do you think happened? In the United States today, we don't have that tradition of honor of duels. In the 19th century, I know there were plenty of duels where two people would be at a college, two students, for example. There's a famous case in South Carolina where the students are eating communally. They each reach for a dish of trout at the same moment. And the custom is that one person lets go of the dish and the other person can use it and then they pass it around. That's the way civilized people normally behave. But there's one situation where the two students reach for the dish of trout and neither one lets go. The table falls silent because they know what it's all about at that point. It switches from just a normal dinner to a tradition of honor. Who's superior, who's inferior? One of them lets go and says, I will see you later. And instead of the grown-ups in the world, the teachers, the head of the school coming and saying, you can't 
go and try to shoot each other over a dish of trout. The professors act as seconds on this. They participate in the duel. And the other students say they have to duel. There's no other way around it. That's a culture of honor where there's a whole group of people who know the rules, know what it's all about. What happened at the Academy Awards is outside a culture of honor. No one quite knows the rules, right? So you have Will Smith getting angry. You have the insult. It came as a surprise. The audience didn't know what to make of it. What are the rules that anybody's following here, right? You go and hit someone. In the 19th century, they didn't have comedians. Where does a comedian fit into the rules of honor? Shakespeare had fools. And the thing about fools, who were comics, really, of their era was they couldn't insult anybody. You would never fight a duel with a fool. You would try to fight a duel if it was going to come to that with someone who's your social equal. Someone who's a comic is outside that sort of a realm. There's a world which is in the past, which knows the rules of honor and the violence connected with honor. Then you have the Academy Awards. Who knows these rules? Will Smith himself, he's laughing at first at the joke, and then he takes it a different way, and he has a visceral reaction to it and comes up to the stage. But the first thing he does is he apologizes. He doesn't say... I hit you, and I'm right, and I'm glad I hit you. I had to hit you. He says almost immediately, I'm sorry. He doesn't have the words because he's not part of this Beck culture of honor. The culture at the Academy Awards is who wins the award. And then he gets that award. He's really honored at that moment. And then how that other thing that he did fits into that, it doesn't fit. No one can make it fit. It's odd. The lesson to be learned from watching that whole thing play out is We are outside the culture of honor, which superficially what happened resembles that. It wasn't a duel. Chris Rock doesn't feel insulted by that. No one quite knows how to play the game that Will Smith seemed to be starting to play, and he himself can't justify it. The world is bewildered by something like this. It's not really about the other person. It's about what's going on in your own head. Yes, and there may be some circles where someone's going to say, hey, you let him talk about you. I remember uh, Trump was insulted at some event. Yes, uh, at the uh, press, yeah, that was, International Press uh, Awards. Obama yeah. was, no, was really, really gave it to him. Yes, he felt the dishonor. Of course, I'm not sure. Perhaps some people felt it the same way, but Trump clearly felt it deeply. Now, at that moment, he didn't jump up and slap Obama. Some there people say that's why again. he ran. Right. Maybe he did. It was his version of jumping up and slapping Obama by running. And then he felt vindicated when he became president. One of the most famous duels is Charles Sumner, who's from Massachusetts. He's an abolitionist. He gives a speech in which he insults a white Southerner who's a slave owner and feels his state's been insulted and he's been insulted by an abolitionist. The white Southerner doesn't challenge Sumner to a duel because he knows the following. He says, Sumner's not going to, he doesn't believe in dueling. So if I were to challenge him over this, he would refuse to duel with me. Plus, he's not my social equal. Duels would have to be with social equals. So he beats him with a cane. He comes up, up to him in the Senate chamber. He's a congressman, gets into the Senate chamber and beats him unconscious with a cane until he's lying unconscious on the floor. The lesson there is dueling is breaking down because many Northerners are like some that they can't understand this barbaric Southerner taking a cane and hitting a United States senator, whereas many Southerners said, boy, Sumner really deserved it. Professor of History Kenneth Greenberg is author of Honor and Slavery, Lies, Duels, Noses, Masks, Dressing as a Woman, Gifts, Strangers, Humanitarianism, Death, Slave Rebellions, The Pro-Slavery Argument, Baseball, Hunting, and Gambling in the Old South. (laughs) 
And that's some of the news for Thursday, March 31st, 2021. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineer is Rachel Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.